You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So today, we are going to be in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. If you don't mind turning there, we'll be in chapters 1 and 2. We'll read all of 1, a little bit of 2, and that's it. But this is continuing on in the series, Faithfulness in All Seasons. We started this back in the summertime, hitting the book of Lamentations. And then from Lamentations, we went to Esther, and from Esther, we are now in Ezra. So there is some chronology here that's going on. And so, but what we'll find here in the first part of the book of Ezra, it's just kind of a retelling of the history, and then it'll, then it'll get us up to speed into a time after Queen Esther. But what we're going to see in the book of Ezra as we lead up to Christmas is a faithful hope. There's a faithful hope. that it, There's a hope that lies ahead. That everything that we've learned from Lamentations and to Esther and now in Ezra is leading us to this hope that is found in Christ alone. And we're going to see, uh, especially that it's Christmas season, how that really does tie in. When we look at this passage today, or in the book uh, of Ezra in general, worship is a big deal. God renewing, restoring his covenant with his people is a big theme. But in God restoring his people, it, it is really restoring his people to worship, back to godly worship. And I do appreciate John Piper's definition of worship. He says, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. True worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. And that's the closest he'll get to giving it a specific definition because it is so broad and vast. So then what is it then, what happens with God's people when they are valuing and treasuring God? You see joy, you see celebration, You begin to see the provisions of the Father. You begin to see feasting and unity, thanksgiving, praise, singing and dancing. Really, also a giving. A giving of self, a giving of money, a giving of resources. And encouragement and building up. So the worship of God, the treasuring of God, the valuing of God is so beneficial. It is so good. And it, is, it impacts all of life in a very wonderful way. But ungodly worship, I would just take the opposite of what Piper had said, that it's false worship that devalues and does not treasure God above all things. And so we are beings that worship everything. right? If we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. And the worship of something else is sin. We've essentially worshipped our way from God, and now we will find that we are worshiping our way back to God. And so what happens then when there's ungodly worship or false worship? What you begin to see is really a manufactured joy and a manufactured celebration. I mean, think about it. When you watch these basketball games or football games on, on TV and you see empty stands, right? Not a single person in the crowd, and yet you hear the roaring of a crowd, because they're manufacturing the fans, they're manufacturing the excitement, 
That's kind of what worship is when it's a false worship. It's manufactured. It's not real. It's not authentic. And there's a feasting and there's a provision, but it's all geared around whatever it is that we are worshiping, whatever it is our idol is. And we call people to being with us for that one thing, whatever it is. And we disclude or cast out anyone else who doesn't want to be with us in it and becomes really focused on self, selfishness, self-centeredness. That's what happens when ungodly worship takes place. And there's disunity and disjointedness and bitterness and uh, really just anger towards one another. That's why you see even in football, especially right, the biggest idolatry that we have in our country, sports, right? Fans, if you're not a Chiefs fan, man, we hate you. If you're not a Raiders fan, we hate you. If you're not a Bron- whatever it is, we create those distinctions. There's no real unity there unless it's being unified in that one thing we're worshiping other than God. And it's fallen because it's dependent upon that someone or that something never failing or never breaking or falling apart. And as soon as your football team loses, as soon as your basketball team loses, as soon as you lose your job, as soon as your marriage is fractured, as soon as whatever it is that you really worship begins to break, your whole world falls apart. And so Israel here, in the book of Ezra, they have fallen from true worship to false worship, which ultimately led to their captivity And so God here in the book of Ezra really has a relentless pursuit to restore their worship. But as we'll see before the book of Ezra is even over, you will, it's like with the the turn of a page, Israel goes from worshiping God to rejecting God and losing sight of worship yet again. And so Ezra comes off the heels of 2 Chronicles. If you go to 2 Chronicles and jump into chapter 36, you'll see really the, the fall of Israel and how Babylon comes in and overtakes Israel, takes them captive, and does this because of their sin. The north had already fallen to Assyria, now the south to the Babylonians, so the Israelites are completely the temple is completely captured over or by a pagan ruler. And if you remember, in the book of Lamentations, Lamentations, we believe, is written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in the time of the exile, most likely saw the destruction of the temple and written the words of Lamentations, but he also wrote the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 25 really helps set the stage. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Jeremiah in the time of captivity or coming to, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, God calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, speaking of the Israelites, jumping down to verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will then punish the king of Babylon. So the king goes from being his servant to then being the object of his wrath, and he will punish him and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes in in 2 Chronicles and he captures Israel. We're looking at around 587 B.C. So there's an approximate time, if you will, of 70 years under this rule of the Babylonians. But then you begin to see the Persians take over and capture the Babylonians. And so we come into Ezra chapter 1 and we see Cyrus, king of Persia. And so the first six chapters of the book of Ezra are really a recap or a retelling of the story of how, uh, of what had happened as far as God's people coming back into Jerusalem. So this information of chapters one through six are actually before the book of Esther. So what we learn about Esther, chapters one through six of Ezra are beforehand. And this is a story about how God exiled his people, but now is bringing them back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to restore worship. So we will see kings of Persia like Cyrus, and then after him comes Cambyses, and then Darius I will come onto the scene in the book of Ezra, and it'll be under Darius, the king of Persia, that we see the temple is fully built and then celebrated. It is after King Darius that you have the king Xerxes or Aswaris from the book of Esther come onto the scene. And so when we talked about Esther last week, we have to understand that the temple was already built. It was already in place yet. And so here Ezra is kind of rewinding the tapes a little bit, reminding us of what's going on, and then will bring us into chapters 7 through 10, where the temple's built the worship was restored, but all of a sudden, Israel falls away again. And then there's the hope of another temple to come, if you will. And so it would be in this time of return and rebuilding of the temple that we end up seeing really a large number of, of prophets, what we might call minor prophets, speaking of a greater hope. Prophets that were living during this time, of course, was Ezra Nehemiah, but you also have Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, all of these minor prophets. You can really see the story of Christmas coming through them, all of them prophesying in this time because this is a huge moment in the history of Israel. Huge moment. And so some think when it comes to worship that God would somehow be selfish for pursuing his worship so relentlessly. Right? If you think about pursuing worship, what we can see is really kind of this negative connotation with it. But worship, worship of God is not like bowing down and worshiping a communist dictator, if you will. But worshiping God is really truly living. To worship God is to truly live, to truly know how to love, to truly know how to be unified, to truly know what it means to be full of joy and hope. God is not asking us to worship Him, to terrorize us, to be completely selfish and evil in His intentions. That's what the communist dictator does, if you will. But rather, the worship of God frees us, gives us hope, it gives us joy. And so with that understanding, it helps us see that God's worship is not just a benefit for himself, but for all of his people. 
It doesn't just benefit a person to falsely worship a dictator only to spare their lives for a few years, few years, but there's nothing but eternal significance and joy when a person worships the one true and living God. And so worship is the greatest treasure of our lives. Worship, the greatest treasure of our lives. And so let's begin to see in verses 1 through 4 how God restores worship and how it is uh, part of the will of God. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes in and rules. The Persians have taken over the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in charge, but here we have Cyrus, and, and it says, to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. And we have already read those words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah existed really, or prophesied that, before Cyrus came into being. But one of the prophecies that this book doesn't explicitly state is a prophecy we see in the book of Isaiah in the 44th chapter. This is a fascinating prophecy because it speaks explicitly of Cyrus, king of Persia. Let me read this to you. Today there's going to be several passages read to you, but I hope that it helps give understanding. So nearly 200 years before Cyrus even comes onto the scene, the prophet Isaiah is told this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. And he skips down. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 200 years before Cyrus is even a twinkle in mama's eye, God is saying this explicitly. 
I'm creating this calamity ultimately to refine you, Israel, and then I'm going to bring you out. And guess what? Cyrus is my shepherd. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? A pagan king is being referenced as a shepherd for God's work. And so it is then no surprise when we get into Ezra chapter 1 that we see really this urgency or this excitement of Cyrus to obey the word of God. God has already stirred him in a unique sort of way. And so this decree that we see here really is an exact um, decree that we see at the very, very end of Second Chronicles 36, almost word for word. And this decree points us to the reality that God is restoring proper worship. The Lord gave Cyrus all the kingdoms. He gave him charge to rebuild the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. He, the Lord told Cyrus that whoever goes with the people back to Jerusalem, that the Lord is with them. And that whoever returns to build will be assisted with goods. Cyrus is going to make sure all of this happens. He is the shepherd, if you will. He is the instrument, the means by which God will bring his people back. And so God uses pagans to contribute to the interest of his work. Not sure if you guys know this about yourselves, but uh, you're a mess up. And we're all mess ups, right? We're all familiar with our mess-ups. We probably woke up this morning going, I'm a real (laughs) mess-up. But where do you think God wants you to remain? Where do you think he wants you to remain? God used Babylon to discipline Israel. It was discipline. It wasn't a full-on wrath away from me forever. It was a discipline with the hope and the intention of bringing them back. And so through Babylon, God refined his people. He woke them up. But what about you? What about me? Some of us may have been finding ourselves experiencing the discipline of the Lord. And when we feel that discipline, man, it weighs heavy. And we go, man, I I am just a mess up. I'm just a mess up. But I want you to recall what God is doing. He is relentlessly pursuing you. He's he's pursuing his people to restore their worship. The problem may be that we have been redirecting our worship elsewhere, and God is maybe using your relationships or the situations in your life that are tough and maybe make you feel like you're a mess up, ultimately to refine you back to himself. I mean, think about it. Many of us in this room are married, Marriage is a refining tool, is it not? Right? If there's someone I don't want to ask how my sermon was on Sunday morning, it's not my wife, because she could tell me exactly what I could have done better, or what I shouldn't have said, or how I was embarrassing in this way. So I've got to find someone who's a little more naive, and who will feed my ego and let me know how wonderful it was. Regardless of your mess-ups, God knew you were going to be a mess up. And just like he told the prophet Isaiah to Israel 200 years prior to this, he made you in your mother's womb. He knew Israel was going to sin. He knew they were going to mess up. He has known that we were going to sin, that we were going to mess up. 
But his intent was not to leave us in our sin, not to leave us in the mess up state, but to bring us back to him for the purpose of worshiping him. And if God has made us to worship him, then what then is there in life that would keep him from coming to restore our hearts towards him? Is there anything too difficult for our God to overcome? Anything. Is there a pagan ruler, a law, a relationship, a situation that is too big for God to overcome to keep from fulfilling his word towards you? I spoke to a friend this last week who was really awakened to the Lord while in college sitting in a sociology class. They weren't even talking about the Lord. But the Lord just captured him in that moment. And so it dawned on him that God and the Bible were true. Church, we have to remember that God is not bound in any way. He's not bound in any way. So how can you see God relentlessly pursuing you so that your worship would be turned back to Him? Basically, what I'm asking you to do is potentially reinterpret the things that are going on in your life. Look at them a little bit differently. If Joseph, in the book of Genesis, looked at his life as always being a downer because he got betrayed by his brothers and then falsely accused of things and thrown in prison, he could have just sunk into depression to the lowest degree. But he, his understanding of things was interpreted through what we see in Genesis 50, that God was going to bring it about that he would save a people. And so all the suffering and the pain and the sorrow of things had a much greater end and it would cause him to worship greatly. So all I'm saying to you is then reconsider how you interpret your life and what is going on and the influences around you and how the Lord may be using them, even if they're pagan, to draw you back to himself. And when your heart is turned towards him in worship, you then find yourself stirred ultimately to serve him. And so secondly, we see worship stirs our hearts to action, verses 5 through 11. Worship stirs our hearts to action. Follow along with me, please. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of the gold of the silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. For those of you who weren't here last week, we had a, a family meeting last Sunday night, and we were able to disclose some really great, great news. And if you don't know, Temple Baptist Church 
uh, unanimously voted to offer, to deed us this facility to give it to us for free if we want it. And this is something that we're going we're gonna to vote on next Sunday, right after service, and we are really excited about the opportunity. And it's, it's great news for sure, but let me ask, what is it that maybe stirs your heart about those, that news? Right? I mean, it's, it's nice to get brick and mortar, if you will, but what is it that might really stir your heart? Because I know some of us are excited. I'm excited about the possibility. Of course, it, it could all tank next week, and maybe you guys don't really want the building, and we'll find out in a vote. But here's what stirs my heart. If you were to come up here and see this plaque, this year they celebrated 90 years. 90 years ago, there was a vision to see this community worship Jesus, to see disciples be made and be born in this community. One thing that we got to discover, if you would put the the slide up, it's going to be difficult to really see and interpret here, but there's a, a picture that was in the office, yeah, that's a picture of a picture. But First Baptist Church downtown um, was kind of the, the mothership church. And from it, a bunch of churches were planted. And on the right-hand side, down low, you see Temple in 1931. And then from Temple was South Haven. And then from South Haven, Rolling Hills. But what you see here is this picture of church planting in the... Um, the beginning of, or at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And so you have here really this continued vision to see the worship of Jesus go throughout the city. Though Temple has found themselves lately in a more uh, struggling place, what we do see though is that continued faithfulness to pray for that work of God to carry on, and through a miraculous phone call, we began to pray and see that, oh my goodness, maybe this is what the Lord has called us to do. You can, you can take it down if you want. We have an opportunity here to return to this place and restore worship in this community. As a church, though we are a church plant, we're not doing anything new under the sun. We're not the latest, greatest thing. We didn't plant a church out of rebellion because all the other churches are bad and we're the best. We did it out of faithfulness to the king and the kingdom. And so now we have a responsibility to bring proper worship back to this community. And it's not that it left, but it's now being carried on. And I would say if that excites you, maybe gives you goosebumps or chills, then you're most likely being stirred in the same way that Israel was stirred and thinking about the worship of their God being restored back into Jerusalem. God gave a vision. He gave a vision and He stirred the hearts of the people to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple. And we, and we have to understand that that's not necessarily an easy thing to take in because they are living in a comfortable Persian lifestyle. They're not being really oppressed or really hated anymore at this point. They're living comfortably. Wealth, they're wealthy people. Remember Esther and Mordecai. They lived really well in Susa, the capital. But this would be a very difficult and inconvenient move to go back from wherever they are in the Persian Empire 
to now rebuilding a temple that their fathers or grandfathers had lost. If you remember in the story of Exodus, Exodus, the Israelites, after they came out of Egypt, they were stirred in the same way. They were stirred to build the tabernacle. You see that in Exodus 25. And what was it that stirred them? It was really the glory of God among them. It was the glory of God among them. So why would this rebuilding the temple stir the hearts of the people? Again, it is his glory among them. It's not just having a building, but it's having their God. Cyrus is right when he said, he is the God of heaven. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is why it stirs the Israelites' hearts to worship and to go and to do. And so whatever was needed was freely given. Freely given in verse 6. Meaning God stirred their hearts. He didn't force them. He didn't coerce them to doing any of this. He stirred their hearts and they were free to give. They freely gave. And so what do you think the people of God do when He stirs their hearts? They do the work. They don't want to do anything else. When God stirs their hearts, they want to obey God. Let me recall what happens in Exodus chapter 36 after the people's hearts were stirred by God. So God commanded through Moses that all these material, gold, purple, uh, purple and blue yarn, fine twine linen, all those things would be donated to the task of building the tabernacle, the portable worship sanctuary. And he had two people in charge of this, Bezalel and Oheliab. And these guys were the project managers for the construction of the tabernacle. And so all the people were giving their goods, and this is what happened. And so the project managers run up to Moses and they say, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. They're bringing too much stuff, Moses. we got to have them stop bringing so much stuff. So Moses gave a command. He had to command the people. And the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Stop giving. You're giving you've given way too much at this point. It's overwhelming. When the people are inspired by God or stirred by God, they give more than what is needed. This is why you see in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's 8 and 9, that the poor, the poor in Corinth gave more than they had. They gave over 100% of what it is that they had. They gave out of their poverty. Why? Because God has stirred their hearts. It's the same thing with temple. They, out of the stirring of their hearts, have offered to give us something that we don't deserve or are entitled to. And so then, out of an act of worship himself, Cyrus returns the items back to the temple. And so this is the, the purpose of this section is to show that when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took all the, the gold and the, and the material and, and took it out, he, the idea was that he would take it and he would lay it essentially at the feet of his pagan gods to show that he is the one, that their gods are the one. But Cyrus is saying, no, they're not. And so it's taking it back to the temple of God saying, this is the God of Jerusalem. And so he helps return a restored worship. 
God has stirred our hearts. He has stirred our hearts to build up the body, to build up the church, to build up the living temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Zechariah, a prophet who lived during the time of Ezra's chapters 1 through 6, said in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, that God would send one to build the temple, referring to the Messiah, referring to Christ. You fast forward to the time of Jesus. We read this in our family worship last night, so I wanted to bring it to bear. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes onto the scene. He comes into Jerusalem, and he's angry because he comes into the temple And he, with a holy, righteous zeal, he cracks the whip on everybody who has made the house of worship a den of robbers. People who have made mockery of God's name and of God's worship. He just casts them out and rebukes them heavily. And so the temple that would ultimately be built by Ezra chapter 6 is the one that Jesus stands in in the New Testament And even though it will be built and constructed, reconstructed, it will not be enough to properly restore worship in the broken hearts of sinners. Jesus must come onto the scene and rebuild yet another temple, what I would call the third temple period. And it will require His life. It will require His death. It will require His resurrection, and it will require the outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon His people. And this is why Christmas is so crucial. God comes to take back what is rightfully His, His worship. Jesus comes back at Christmas to perfectly lay a foundation for a new and better temple that will never be destroyed Jesus is that foundation. He is that cornerstone. And we, the church, are being built upon Him. And so the work of Jesus to perfectly restore our worship, that should stir our hearts greatly. It's the same idea. That God is building His church. He's building His temple through us. Are we stirred with affections for worship of Jesus? Are we stirred? Or are we bored with Him? It just kind of gets old. Are we stirred that we are to the point that we're willing to give anything for the sake of His name? Just like Israel would. Are we truly a living sacrifice offered up to God as acceptable and pleasing worship to Him? Israel had moments of being stirred to where they would rise up and bring whatever was needed, even more so. Are you willing to rise up and bring whatever is needed for worship, or are you going to hoard it all? Are you a giver, or are you a hoarder of your worship? When you freely give for the church, and you freely give to the Lord, the church is then encouraged. The church then is built up. The church then has confidence to worship God. When you 
hoard your worship and you keep it to yourself and your personal private relationship with Jesus and not anywhere else, the church suffers greatly and becomes discouraged, burdened, torn down, and ultimately worship is hindered. So when we freely give for the sake of worship, there is a wonderful impact it has. And it is this, it begins to restore the community. And the last point here, chapter 2, worship restores community. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses here in chapter 2, and the rest of it is a bunch of listing here. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banna. Now, the rest of this chapter, I'm going to let you read on your own. It's not unimportant. It's very important. We'll get into that in just a moment. But here you have a listing of names, specific names and tribes and people that were taken out. But here's the main point of chapter 2, which makes it so exciting, is that the people of God are coming back. This is the first wave of exiles that come back into Jerusalem. And then when Ezra comes onto the scene, you'll see another wave coming back, and ultimately in the time of Nehemiah as well. And one thing I just want to make sure no one gets confused on, Mordecai and Nehemiah in those verses are not the Mordecai and Nehemiah that you think we're talking about. It's not Nehemiah the prophet, and it's not Mordecai from the book of Esther. Otherwise, it would, they would be well advanced in age, like 120, 30 years old, And it wouldn't make sense because Mordecai didn't go back to Jerusalem. He lived in Susa, the citadel. So just to bring some clarity there, if I happen to be wrong, please let me know. And Mordecai, that is the same Mordecai and Nehemiah, but scholars believe it is not. The listing here that you see in all of chapter 2 highlights God's desire to restore a community that existed pre-captivity. That's why we can use the word restore. Because God still has it in Him, a desire to bring His people back. Even though He had to discipline them, He desires to bring them back. Like a father disciplining a child, you don't want to just cast them away, you discipline them to teach them, and you bring them back in. And so what has happened, though, and why this is a refining for Israel, is because they were worshiping something else, and they weren't getting it, and they weren't turning to God. And so God had to really wake them up with a harsh ruler, with the Babylonians, so that they might suffer, and they might actually wake up to see that they are not worshiping God like they should be. And what has happened, though, under those conditions, under that fire, they weakened. They weakened. They became a little bit more brittle, if you will. But it was through that weakening that God would ultimately strengthen them. 
He would renew their strength. He would restore them. Finally, they're to the brokenness point, if you will, that they see that they need God, that they can't do this on their own. And so the names of these people, and I love paying attention to names, I really do, and especially when you get into the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ, it is wonderful to see the names that lead up to the birth of Christ. The names of these people and their tribes ultimately tie them to an inheritance. It ties them to a purpose. It ultimately gives them security as sons and daughters of God. This is who you are. You are my people. That's what God is saying. You're my son, my daughter. Here's what I have promised you. Here is your inheritance. Here is your citizenship. And I am your king. And these people have the honor to be called the first to return back to Jerusalem. It may seem odd that worship restores community, but if you think about who God is, it, it doesn't. God is one God. He's three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And God has made people to reflect His unity among the Godhead. So when God made Adam, he also made Eve, made people to be one as he is one in that sense. And so when we are bowing down to false worship or to idols, it will naturally pull us away from God's design and create a broken sort of community. That's what sin is. That's why Cain and Abel didn't get along. But when sinners are changed and are brought together in worship, true godly worship, you begin to see community then truly be restored to the way that it was supposed to be in the garden before sin entered in. Paul recognized in the New Testament that when believers came together in proper worship, they were united by the Spirit, and they were bonded together by peace in Ephesians 4.3. So when God's people came together to worship, they were united, not broken. They were bonded by peace, meaning they were made whole. And that's the idea of shalom in the Bible. Is It's a picture of wholeness. So like a temple being built cannot miss a stone. So the church, when it comes together, is like a temple that needs all the stones so that it can be properly built together. When a stone is missing it should cause us to go, hey, we're not really whole here. What's going on? And this is the work of Jesus to restore worship and why the community of the saints is so important. Coming together on Sundays or throughout the week is not just some religious, religious exercise, but a time of true unity and true worship. And listen, church, this should be encouraging. God knows you by name. He knows you by name. When it comes to restoring worship, it's not just a matter of just bringing people together, like herding people together like cattle, but it's a, it's a matter of everyone coming together with the understanding that God knows us intimately and by name. These names in chapter 2 have significance to God and significance to the people of God. 
I mean, think of a, think of a rock show or a concert you might go to. The band or the artist who's up on stage doesn't know everyone in the crowd. Might know a few people on the stage, of course, you know, people who are working with them. But there could be thousands of people and know none of them. But God, he knows everyone by name. There's nobody insignificant in his kingdom. And the name that God gives us, the name that he gives us, that is it, sons or daughters, heirs, priests, that links us then to an inheritance, to a promise, to a future hope that we have in Christ. And so God has then not just given us individually a name, but us as a family a name. And we need to be aware of that. It's important for us to know our brothers and sisters. Not to just casually come by them and never talk or interact, but to know them. I've said this before. I've said, talking about our church being uh, pr- pretty diverse in, in story and, and everything, I've said, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, we all wouldn't be hanging out. Like, what reason would we have outside of Jesus to ever come together, Right? But as I've been thinking about this, I think I may have been slanting that in the wrong direction. Now I'm thinking, if it wasn't for sin, we would have never stopped being together. We were designed from the beginning to be together. We kind of have it backwards that we're all made differently, introvert, extrovert. We know, you know, some people are weird and shy. Some are really gregarious and loud and obnoxious. And like, we're not supposed to be together. And so we, we say Jesus is what brings us together, but understand, we were made to be together from the very beginning, but sin tore us apart. Sin created those divisions. Sin created those stereotypes that put us into different cliques or groups or whatever it is. And so coming back together as a community is exactly what God has designed for us. If you were asked kind of like the book of Ezra here, to write a story of how Redeemer uh, coming to worship in this place and, and how God has brought us here to this place and the people that would come here, how many names would you be able to write in those pages? Like, that's really condemning. <laughs> but if you were to write the story of Redeemer, how many people could you write down by name? Who do you know or who do you not know among our church body? Like when you see our church family, do you see a restored sense of worship to Jesus? Or do you occasionally kind of see somebody who's just kind of like, eh, they're obnoxious, they're in my way? Or do we see our family? And when we come together as a community, part of restored worship in that sense is being strengthened by God. We may have found ourselves straying from the Lord, undergoing discipline, finding ourselves completely weak and helpless. The community of the Lord is a reminder of His great strength for you. The Bible speaks of the Father working for you through His people. And so seeing worship restored within the community is a reminder that we are all desperately in need of God's mighty and strong hand. Further, the community reminds us 
of God's unending mercy and love to really just call us by His name. So church, our worship is not defined by a building. And this is what God has been saying throughout the entire Bible, from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. Worship is not going to be defined by what hill you stand on, what building you stand in, or what part of the world you reside, but upon our hearts being transformed and able to worship in spirit and truth. So as disciples of Jesus, we recognize that we were made for the very purpose of worship. And worship is so good for the soul because it is bound up in our life-giving God. Cyrus, the king of Persia, here in chapter 1, started by saying that he had a desire to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah had said. And Jeremiah made it clear that there would be a time of refining for Israel, but then he would ultimately bring her back. And the prophet Jeremiah goes on even further in his book, talking about a promise that is to come, that is ahead. And what does God promise? What is that great hope that is for God's people? And so I just want to read these words from Jeremiah 29, words you're familiar with, but maybe have it in the right context now of what's going on as we close today's passage. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jesus has come to bring us back to the worship for which we were made. Worship is coming. Worship His work on the cross. Worship His resurrection. Worship knowing that one day you will receive an inheritance of great prosperity that is ultimately found in Jesus.